0: Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we began last week, of course, on the Lord's Day in this most important section on, of Scripture. All Scripture is inspired and breathed out by God, but this one is crucial for our. Uh, We would call it ecclesiology in the doctrine of the church. We use that term to speak of the church, and obviously that matters greatly uh, to us because it's in the Word of God. Let me just read for you. Um, Ephesians four one through six. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let me bow us in a word of prayer and we'll begin. Father, would you turn our attention to this precious word that we might be the church that you've designed, that you've created, that Father has specified to it, Father, that instructs us what we are to be and to do. So, Lord, would you guide this day, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart to obey the teaching of the Word of God. Father, do a work even in all of the hearts this day. I would have no idea where each is, but I pray that you would tune this, Father, in the scripture to their hearts that they might be able to hear and maybe that, and it, that it may be that we'd even be able to change and grow. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Scripture, as, as you know, has much to say about unity, but often unity in the church is difficult at times. And some of you have come out of churches that have been disunified and divisive and that's hard. And I think all of this is evident in a humorous story I read about denominational ties. I shared this a a couple of years ago, but I, I couldn't get beyond it as I intro today on our theme of the character of unity in the church. It's a humorous story. The man said, I was in San Francisco, walking across the Golden Gate Bridge. When I saw this guy on a bridge, on that bridge, ready to jump, I thought I'd try to save him. So I said, don't jump. And he said, I I guess you're right. And I said, are you a Christian or are you Jewish or what? He said, a Christian. And I said, small world, me too. Protestant or Catholic? Catholic. Or Greek Orthodox, and he said Protestant, and I said me too. What denomination? He said Baptist, and I said me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist, and he said Northern Baptist, and I said me too. Northern Conservative Fundamental Baptist or Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist? He said Northern Conservative Fundamental Baptist, and I said me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern Region? And he said Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region. And I said, Me too. And then he continued, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region of 1879, or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And he said, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912, to which the man said, I screamed, and I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over the bridge. I mean, we just, we chuckle at that. Some of the language is familiar with some of the denominations, but the truth is, often in our attempts to to bring unity in the church, it's not as easy as we think. And this is Paul's theme here in Ephesians 4, running from verse 1 to 16. I think part of the problem that The struggle is today is that people want organizational unity rather than spiritual unity. And there's no doubt that spiritual unity comes to us from the word of God. People have asked me, I shared that last week, how come there's so many denominations? And there may be, and that would be true, but when I meet a true believer, I find that true believers have a common creed, a common heart, a common understanding of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, he's after the theme of unity. In fact, look at verse 3. We read from it, even this day, eager to maintain, 4-3, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And then immediately after that, in verses 4 through 6, he goes through a series of seven ones identifying doctrinal clarity, okay? Doctrinal clarity is going to come, and we're going to look at that in the weeks to come. If you glance down in your Bible again at chapter 4, in verse 13, we're equipping the saints in 12 for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of, definite article, the faith. In other words, there's a faith that's been prescribed once and for all for the saints. And so we're after this unity created by the Spirit and after this unity that we're attaining to of the faith. Now, we've established here for the last year that positional unity has been fought and won by the Lord Jesus Christ. Look back in chapter 2. I just remind you of this in verse 14. We're speaking of the work of Christ. He himself is our peace who has made us both one. He took Jew and Gentile and he made us one, if you will, which was a miracle. What a feat even to accomplish that. Look at 2.15. He abolished the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, making peace. Jesus Christ, by virtue of His atoning death, has created this positional unity. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 16, it says that He might reconcile us both, context Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross. And so, there's positional unity. It's been forged on the anvil, if you will, of Christ's death on the cross, And it finishes by saying in chapter 2, we're fellow citizens of God's household, we're members of God's household. And then look at 2.22. He says, in him, you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, we are, in the language of Paul, the dwelling place where God is revealing his wisdom, chapter 3, verse 10, revealing his Character and then it came down. We said in 321, Here to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. So he's made the church one in position, he told us to glorify him. And now, as we step into 4 1, you can see the words there in 4 1 of Ephesians I, therefore, and then he exhorted us to walk worthy. And we talked about that last week, that the word therefore is bound up in chapter 4, 1. And really it looks back not only to the immediate context of chapter 3, but I really think he's transitioning us in the entire book. The therefore is, we find it there because of the previous three chapters. And he's making a transitional link here between the first half of the book and 1 through 3, and the second half of the book in 4 through 6. And we made this link, which is where the text is going, that for God to be glorified in 321, the church now in 41 through 16 must be unified. And we mentioned last week, he's taking us from doctrine to duty, He's taking us from the indicative of what Christ has done to our responsibility and to our duty. He takes us, if you will, from our creed, what we believe and what Christ has done and what God has done, to our conduct of how we're to live. He takes us from heavenly conduct that we've been blessed in the heavenlies to, if you will, earthly conduct, how we are to live. And the exhortation here in chapter four is to be unified. Now, you and I would know that churches can be sometimes so filled with strife that the gospel has lost its practical power because of the disunity. Now, I said that carefully. The gospel is powerful. We understand that, Romans 1.16. But we mentioned last week that if God's going to be glorified, the church, this is the section, has to be unified. And you might say, well, what's at stake when the church of Jesus Christ at large, the universal church, what's at stake when the church is not unified? And the answer would be God's glory. God's glory. Now, obviously, God's intrinsically glorious. We've established that weeks ago. But his glory needs to be seen. And God's made it such that he's deposited his glory in the vehicle of the local church so that the local church would reveal both the gospel and even the character of God. Now, you'll note, look at the text again. I won't go over it, but he calls himself a prisoner of the Lord. And I like that phrase, I urge you. And, and it's not even an exhortation It's actually It's not an imperative there He's just giving his plea in, Here at ESV it says I urge you Some translation says I plead with you uh, You could even translate it I beg you It's really a call to intensity And in this urging At least in the ESV Paul is not harsh He is not cold He is urging, he is pleading. Now, what he does in this text is he's putting forth a series of, I would call them compelling arguments that build a unified church. So listen, we're not at loss as to what the church is to be and do in terms of unity. We're gonna get to the confession in a couple weeks, but Paul's gonna tell us and he puts forth A series of compelling arguments that allow us to see what the church must be to be unified and thus glorify God. I would say from my heart to yours, this is vital for us. This is so important so that we reveal God's glory and his character through our unity because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked at that first compelling argument last week, the call to unity. And the call to unity, look again at 4.1, was to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And we said there to walk is the ideal of conduct, if you will. It's the, the daily conduct that we're to walk. And we just mentioned that some churches are so disunified, so dysfunctional, and it's simply because you... The leadership or the people sitting, you know, in the seat or in the pew or in the chair are disunified with one another. So this is a fascinating thought. You do, I do, we have a responsibility. We want God's glory, but Paul begins with a call here. And he says, I'm begging you, I'm pleading you, I'm urging you, I'm calling you with intensity to, To walk in a manner worthy, in other words, your conduct matters. And remember I said that word for worthy is the Greek word axios, and it spoke of the scales being weighed in balance to have equal, if you will, distribution in these scales. And all Paul is saying here, but it's profound. You've been called with a great spiritual calling in chapter 1 through 3. Now you have an exhortation to walk in your daily life in that conduct. Obviously, John Paul read the Ten Commandments today, and obviously that comes from the book of Exodus, but nine of those ten are reiterated in the New Testament. The only exception would be the Sabbath day. But we have a responsibility to God, and that's Paul's thought here, to walk worthy. In fact, just for a moment, so we don't lose the focus, he's spoken about that word of conduct before. Look back in chapter 2. He says, you know this in 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once, past tense, once walked. In other words, you used to live however you wanted to live, but now you don't, because you've been called by God. He separated you. He called you out. You came to Christ. You believed. The Holy Spirit was deposited into you, and you don't walk like you once walked, past tense. You say, well, how do I walk? Well, glance down at chapter 2, verse 10, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that you should what walk in them in other words you're to walk you say what does it mean to walk well one of the dimensions of it is you're to walk in good works you have a responsibility And so Paul says here now, back in 4.1, to walk in a manner worthy. Look over at chapter 4. Do you remember he used the word there? Looking back, he said, now this I say, and I'm in 4.17, and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How did they walk? In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding and understanding and alienated from the life of God so you don't walk like that that's how you used to walk and so glance down at chapter 5 verse 2 he tells us there in verse 1 to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love so you've got to walk if you will in the light and here 5 2 you've got to walk in love glance down at chapter 5 verse 8 the second half of verse eight, "Walk as children of light." And he says the same thing in 5:15, "To walk wise." And so here the key, beloved, I don't want to make more of it, is your righteousness. is your holiness. Is your walk is to be consistent with the high calling? That's how he begins. And then Paul begins to say more, and can you tell me more about the worthy walk? And the answer would be yes, because the worthy walk in what flows out of the text, if you will, is accompanied by five graces of the character of unity. So there's the call to unity of the church, and now the character of unity in the church, okay? He called you to it, walk worthy. Now, here's the character, and I just call them five graces of uh, the worthy. Walk if you will. That's what he's after right here. So, beloved, let me say this. You, second person, you have got to activate these graces. You are responsible to activate these graces that God may be glorified and the church might be unified. You don't have an option in this. If you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna call Grace Church of the Valley your church, you are called to obey, obey, if you will, these graces. And he lists them, and we'll take a couple of them today, okay? The first grace, look at it in chapter 4 in verse 2. He says, with all, what? Humility. Here's the first grace, and that's where we left off. With all humility. And it's somewhat shocking uh, to, to me a little bit, humanly speaking. How come it's not with all leadership? How come it's not with all marketing? How come it's not with all worship, if you will? No, no, no. Paul begins here He calls you to something. The character of that call is with all humility. And he begins, if you will, not with an organizational chart. He starts with culture, for the sake of a word. He starts, if you will, with attitudes. He's not talking here about strategy or vision. He'll get into some of that as we go into chapter 4. But he basically is saying your relationships to one another, is crucial. And he begins here in 4.2, it's radical, with all humility. I mean, the world is a contrast we know exalts power. It, it exalts pride. In fact, to be perfectly honest, in biblical literature, when you look at the word humility, it was actually a word that was detested in the ancient world. In fact, you could read even in Greek, not just biblical Greek, but in the languages, they didn't even use this word. In fact, to to speak of such a word, if it did come up, which you can rarely find in extra, you know, uh, historical Greek, it was shameful. In, In fact, just put yourself back in this church at Ephesus And this letter comes to you, and you're Jewish, and you're sitting next to a Gentile. And Paul says, by the way, you're one new man. By the way, you're one body. By the way, Christ has made peace for you. By the way, you're fellow members. By the way, you're you're, uh, fellow citizens of God's household. You're the dwelling place of God and you can begin to get the feel a little bit of the, of the historical context of the hatred and the hostility and the anger. And now Paul, in writing, giving a scripture, says with all humility, what is humility? I mean, it's calling you by the Spirit of God to be humble, men and women. He's saying that your character in this church, and we could extend it in your home, Needs to be humble. But what is it? Well, let me zero in from, for you on that. It says with all humility. It's just a compound Greek word. It comes from part of the word which is called tapenos. You say, what does that mean? It just means low as opposed to high. That word tapenos meant unimportant, if you will, poor. Low as opposed to high. And then there's another word attached to it in the compound, and it's freneto. And freneto means to think or to judge. And so when you put those words together, here is a simple definition of humility to think or to judge yourself as lowly, unimportant, and even in the context, poor is what it means. To think or judge yourself as lowly, unimportant, and poor. In fact, when you think about what does this word mean, the the one who, who coined it, if you will, who made it what it is, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look over to the book of Philippians just for a second. Do you remember there when he's talking about, even in that sense, unity... There, when he says in chapter 2 of Philippians 2, complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. And then he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in, what's it say there? Humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In other words, as you come into the church of Jesus Christ, you're to count yourself in humility low, if you will. And others are more significant than you. In other words, it almost provides the definition of what humility means. Look at chapter 2, verse 4 there in Philippians. Let each of you not only look out for his own interest... But also the interest of others, have this mind in yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who although he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he, you can underline that, what, humbled him self. So humility is defined by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our example of humility, that he being very God, as it says there in the text, in human form, he took on flesh, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So here's the character of Unity in the church, it begins with humility. Of course, Jesus modeled this, as you know, in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. Do you remember what he said? For I am gentle and what? Lowly in heart. Humble in heart. And he's the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you see that model you're beginning to see a little bit of what you're called to be in this body. In fact, it either says, I'm gentle and humble in heart, but the ESV actually says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. So whoever says, John the Apostle said in 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. And we ask the question, well, how did he walk? He walked humble. He himself was meek. He himself was lowly. And I had to think what a far cry from churches whose leaders are marked by pride, whose members are embittered against each other. Listen, you could have the, most, you could have the greatest staff, you could have the most beautiful building, but if you don't manifest this character one to another, then God's glory is at stake and God's unity is at stake. In other words, it could be that in the life of some churches, I was reading one, I won't give you the name of it, who's just blown up, a very prominent church. Four staff members have left in the last four months, and disunity is creeping itself in from what was a very historical church, and one of the things cited was the power abuse by the elders, But here, Paul is saying, no, when we come into our church, you, I, you're coming in with this kind of character of humility. I mean, you think of the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, 19, when he said, serving the Lord with all humility. In other words, he's serving the Lord with all lowliness. He's thinking and judging other people as more important than himself. And he's the Apostle Paul. He's the guy that would have direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's serving the Lord in Acts 20, 19 with all humility. Now, obviously, if I asked you the question, what is the opposite of humility? You would say what? Pride. Pride is what gets in the way of this. And so this cannot be manifested in our heart. The original sin of Adam and Eve was what? You say, well, they ate the apple. Actually, the original sin of Adam and Eve was pride. Pride. The outcome is they took what was forbidden, but the heart of it was pride. You say, what do you mean pride? They trusted their wisdom over God's. God said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die. And Satan comes in, the tempter comes in, as you know know what happened, He tempted Eve, and Eve gave it to Adam, but pride snuck in. Pride, of course, was the first sin of Lucifer, the devil. And I would say to us that at the heart of all divisions in church splits is usually pride. In fact, I would tell you after serving the Lord a long time, not exclusively, but rarely, rarely is it doctrine. We say it's doctrine, but really what's happened is people get sideways with each other. I mean, you could become prideful in many areas. You can be prideful in your abilities. You could be prideful in your gifts. You could be prideful with your possessions. You could be prideful with your education. You could be prideful with your appearance. You could be prideful with your biblical knowledge. So let me help you today, and I'm already into the application, okay? Stuart Scott A friend down from the Masters University has written a helpful little book. It's called From Pride to Humility. And one of the things he said in it is it's so difficult to see pride in ourselves and yet so easy to see in the life of others. And he gave in this little book 30 observations. And I'm not going to do that, okay? But I'm going to give you a few of the observations. And my desire is to make sure that we're unified. My desire is to to make sure that you're at unity, both in this church and in our home. So whether you're in fifth grade or you're 50, get a pen out, okay? Jot these down. Whether you're in seventh grade or you're 70, get a pen out and write these down. And so I'm into my application. And let me just start just for a moment here with humility's opposite. And it's opposite, as I just mentioned, is pride. Listen, pride can suck the joy out of our church. It can suck the joy out of your home. It could suck actually the unity of every relationship. It just just leaves when pride is manifest, you might ask, well, how do I detect pride? Let me give you a few, okay? Some of these are developed from Stuart Scott in that little book, but let me just help you with a few. Lest we just say, oh, the character of unity is humility. Well, proud people, let me, let me begin with this, complain and they pass judgment on God, so what are, you, what are you talking about, Scott? Well, that's a, there's a number of characteristics, but one of them is in the midst of trial, you, proud people complain and pass judgment on God. Proud people are tempted to think, look what, you know, look what God has done to me after all I have done for him. In, in fact, you, you, you desire something more, if you will. You think you deserve something more. In fact, often proud people see no reason to be thankful for what they receive. They may even complain because they think they deserve better. In fact, if you're not careful, proud people can become critical, they can become complainers, and they can become discontent. And so when Paul says the character of unity, you need to walk in this way, we can't have that manifest in our life. In fact, one of the characteristics of prideful people is anger. And anger reveals itself maybe in a number of ways. You could be angry and just withdraw. What is that? It's a sign of pride. You can become angry and pout. You can do it in your home, by the way. You could become angry and become frustrated. And you could become angry and become moody. And a person becomes angry because his or her rights or expectations are not met. Listen, if we come into the church like that, we're toast here. In fact, prideful people may not even come across proud So what are you talking about? They may not come across that way because they have a woe is me attitude, which is (laughs) self-pity by itself, which is pride. In fact, another characteristic of prideful people, and I'll get to humility. I'm just trying to spell this out so we don't just keep moving. He's in his application here. So I think I have some freedom to do this. Prideful people seek control. Prideful people find it difficult to work under someone or even to submit to authority. Some even say, I don't need anyone. Some say, I don't even need accountability for my faith. Prideful people, whether it's a man or woman, can be rigid. They could become uh, headstrong. They could be stubborn, and they can be intimidating. And Paul's saying, listen, when you walk into this place, You need to leave that one at the door, right? You've got to come in here humble. You're not better than another. You're not greater than another. You don't deserve something better, if you will. In fact, a prideful person can be consumed, in addition, with the approval of others, focusing on what others think of you, or trying to impress them being a man-pleaser rather than a God-pleaser, according to Galatians 1. Obviously, that's not just for adults. Junior hires can struggle with that. You can just be consumed with how you look. So if you're in sixth grade or fifth grade or seventh grade, you could be more concerned with how it looks on you rather than coming in and saying, how can I serve another person? Prideful people can struggle with criticism. Such people cannot bear that they are not perfect or have weaknesses, and if you do that, you'll, you'll manifest pride and not humility. Prideful people can at times, Stuart Scott said, be unteachable. So what do you mean? Well, they think they know it all. They think they're superior. They can't seem to learn anything from someone else. In fact, it'd be frightening to think out of any of us here that you could become so prideful that you respect no one. And then you just move into a corner. And, and listen, this is going to suck the life out of this place. And, and certainly we want to keep our doctrine clear. But as we walk in, as I walk in, as you walk in, I pray that we would, we would not be prideful. In fact, prideful people can be sarcastic. They could be hurtful. They, and sometimes this is cleverly done through jesting, excusing themselves as that's just my personality. In fact, prideful people can be defensive. They could be blame shifters. You know what I mean by a blame shifter? Rather than identifying your own sin, you blame shift it to someone else or you put it on someone else. Sometimes this could happen, obviously, to all of us. We could say, are you saying it's my fault? And in the same conversation, we can turn back to them, sometimes the ones closest to us and saying, what about you? See, when pride enters in, humility goes out the door. In fact, what pride is, is a lack of admitting you're wrong. And proud people excuse their sin. So I'm just being honest with you. This is why churches blow up. There's not humility, and I'll get to that in a moment. There's pride. Now, I stand before you as a pastor, but you also know, I know, I'm a sinner, right? Saved by grace. And whatever you don't know about me, my family knows that about me. And there are times that I could blame shift. There's times I can excuse away my sin. There's times I could say to Patty, hey, what about you? And I must be very honest with you that I live out my middle name, I live it. I wish I didn't, but I, I live it. You might not even know what my middle name is. Do you know what it is? My middle name is Adam. And I'm just like Adam. When God came and said, what have you done? He said, "Ah, oh, the woman you gave me, she ate and I also ate. And my middle name is Adam. And my mom and dad gave me that name. And so whatever I'm not, it's their fault for giving it to me. <laughs> but I got to tell you, I got on the phone yesterday and I called my mom. My dad has went to be with the Lord. And I said, Mom, I've never asked you why you gave me that name. I just, I'm Scott Adam Artivanus." And I said, I've never asked you why that you gave me that name because I knew that they were full-on unbelievers When they got married, they were full-on unbelievers when I was born. So how did I end up with the name Adam, a biblical name? And I was really hoping that she would tell me something impressive, you know? I was really hoping that she would say something spiritual, and I would say, I had no idea you thought that, even as an unbeliever. She says, oh no, Scott, we actually named you after an actor. This is yesterday on the phone. I said, an actor... I said, Mom, you've never told me that. I'm crushed. You know, and uh, she said, there was a show on TV. Do some of you know it? Bonanza. She named me after Adam Cartwright. <laughs> Big brother, if you will, to Haas and Little Joe. And I said, Mom, I'm just, that, that, I, I wanted something more from, no, I named you after Adam Cartwright. But I just I look back and I think about pride. I I live out my name sometimes, and we can all do that. But listen, just as every sin has its roots in pride, let me turn the corner, every virtue has its roots in humility. Do you remember when we exposited from the book of James and we got to chapter 4, 6, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the what? To the humble. And Paul says here, God is glorified when the church is unified. And the character of, of unity, if you will, starts with unity. It, it starts with humility. A low estimate of yourself and esteeming others is more important than our own needs. You say, well, what does humility look like? Well, let, let me explain a little bit. A humble person, I'll flip it, trust God. Why would you start with that? I thought you were talking about us. No, a humble person, first, I would say this trust God and thanks God for all that He is doing in the midst of their trial. And I'm asking you when we're humble, we'll take every joy or trial that falleth from above, traced on our dial by the Son of Love. It's a realization of your life, my heart, when we are angry at God. And the opposite is true. When we're humble, we'll just thank him for everything he's doing. In fact, the humble person, you say, why are you saying this? Because I'm telling you, you can't walk in this place unless your life is right with God. If you've never dealt with either your sin or your lot or your trial... How could you ever have unity in your own home or even unity in the church? And so here a humble person sees themselves as having no right to question or judge God. A humble person knows an all-wise God does what's best for our good and ultimately His glory. Which means that a humble person... I'm just trying to flesh this out a little bit. Doesn't complain about their circumstances because you know that you don't deserve anything. So let me ask you, how are you doing in the midst of your trial? And I have them every week, daily things come in. And when we lose our joy, something is wrong. We don't deserve anything. So here, the humble person is not barking, chipping, angry. That man or woman is not joyless because they don't deserve anything. In fact, the humble person doesn't view themselves as better than others. He understands or she understands that they themselves are capable of the worst sin. So here's another quality of humility: to think lowly. Is a humble person is teachable? Are you teachable? Did a little child say yes over there? Um, I mean, that means you're teachable, even when you think, even when you think you're right, you're willing to consider that you might be wrong. A humble person has no problem saying, "I was wrong." Thank you for telling me that. A humble person builds other people up; they don't cut people down. Ephesians 4:29. Stuart Scott added this. He said, I like this one. He said, a humble person has friends because they are friendly and they love others. A humble person has friends, I like that, because they're friendly and they love other people. In fact, beloved, let me just say this. I was really praying about this the last couple of days. You can't even be a believer without humility, right? Jesus said, you finished the statement, unless you're converted and you become like a, like what? Children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he went on to say in Matthew 18, whoever then humbles himself as a child. This quality is crucial. Listen, do you want to know why they're so issues? much disunity, it's filled with churches that don't even know the Savior. And one of the characteristics of us is when we walk in the door, we're thinking lowly of ourselves, esteeming others as more important than yourself. In fact, I would just add this. I appreciate how gracious Matt was today, and I don't want to get in the flesh, like, come to the membership class, and if that's what you'd like to consider, I'd be a little firmer, like, for my heart to you, What in the world are you doing sitting at a church and not becoming a member? We need you, and you need the church, and we need each other. In fact, I thought about this. You could just not have any friendships here and any relationships because you're not connected anywhere And I'm thinking, wait a minute, we're the dwelling place of God. We're the fellow citizens and of the household of God. Listen, I want to greatly encourage you to step up. And I want to greatly encourage some of you that have been coming for six months, nine months, 12 months, some of you for years, step up into this place. You say, well, Scott, I've got a few things. Well, let's talk through them. Scott, I came out of this. Well, then let's talk through this but we really need to make sure that we're teachable to one another because we need each other. And here, humility is a quality of those who are saved. Two men went up in the temple, you remember that, to pray. One's a Pharisee, and the other guy is a tax collector. The Pharisee, interesting, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or I'm not even like this tax collector. He said "Did the Pharisee, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing, it says, far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, uh, what? a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, that man went down from his house justified rather than the other. Justified. He, he became saved, if you will, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So listen, partly when pride exists so much in every single relationship, sometimes you have to take inventory if you know Christ, if that person knows Christ. You say, well, Scott, I've never thought about it. Well, think about it. When somebody's in Christ, the Spirit of God wants to work this quality in of humility. And where we're not humble, he wants to ever be driving us to that. So Paul says here with all humility, total humility, think lowly. Let me ask you, does your character esteem others more important than yourself? But look, there's a second character there. Look at it in Ephesians. We'll touch on it here. It says, not only with all humility, but it says with all gentleness. Gentleness. Sometimes it's translated meekness. Okay, I like the word gentleness. Sometimes meekness. But gentleness, listen, you so say, how does that connect? This way it's a sure sign of humility. Humility and gentleness go together, if you will. Just as a humble person thinks lowly of himself or herself, the response in kind is usually gentleness with other people. You say, what is it though? Well, gentleness is the absence of a demanding spirit and an assertion of your own rights. See, our church will have unity when we're gentle, right? doesn't mean we don't have convictions because he's going to talk about our confession in a few weeks, what is gentleness? It's a lack, let me put it this way, of a vindictive and bitter spirit. In other words, you're not vindictive. You're not bitter. In fact, it's interesting, if you could picture this word gentle, it's the Greek word protes, and it was used in three ways, kind of in, in the Greek language. Number one, sometimes a medicine... Uh, that was used calmed or soothed the spirit. The medicine was gentle. Sometimes that word gentle was used of the word for breeze, a breeze that would cut across a hillside and cool people, if, if you will. The other way that that word gentle was used was it spoke of a colt that was broken, or if you will, or tamed And so here's this calming, this soothing, this breeze, this taming. You say, what is gentleness? It is this, beloved. It is power under control. Power under control. It's not weakness. It is a heart attitude, if you will, that has self-mastery. I'm going to put it this way, over the tongue, biblically. It's in the heart, but it has self-mastery over the little red rebel that lives inside the, your mouth. In fact, here's how it's used just a number of places. Think about the speech here. Here is of a, of a leadership when Paul told Timothy, I don't know if this one comes up, 2 Timothy 2, 25 to 26, that the Lord's servant Those in leadership aren't to be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness. This is a hard quality. You're in leadership, many of you, at many different places, whether it be a man or woman, and you're called to lead, and yet you've got to lead in such a way that you're not you know, all over people, but that you're gentle. In fact, Paul said to Timothy, he said, you man of God, flee from these things. In 1 Timothy six eleven, pursue righteousness. He said, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And then in the same breath, right after that word gentleness, if you go look at the next verse, it says, it says, fight the good fight of faith. So we're called to be gentle. We're called not to be vindictive. We're, we're called to be forgiving, to not have a, a bitter spirit. Just, just for a second. Just think if you've got something against someone in here and you're bitter and you're unforgiving, if you will, and you're vindictive, what's at stake here is the glory of God And maybe I shouldn't just say about the church, I know people who are connected to families that haven't spoken with family members for years because of something said, because of something thought. And listen, as far as it depends upon you, you need to be at peace with all people. And your heart and my heart needs to be both humble and gentle. Even in relation to the government, in Titus 3, it says to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak uh, evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. And it says in Titus 3, to be gentle and showing perfect courtesy to all people. We're to be gentle doesn't mean we can't actually stand for our rights and, and we do that. Some of our people are going to the abortion clinic on Friday. That's peaceful. But it does tell us that we're to be gentle. It uses that word. In our evangelism, it tells us to give in a defense, you know, to everyone who asks of you. And it says to do so with gentleness and with reverence. Gentleness, beloved, is not weakness Moses was described in Numbers 12.3 as the meekest man, the most gentle man of all the earth. And yet when he came down from the mountain, he took those tablets and threw them down because of the sin of the people with the golden calf, Exodus 32. Christ was meek. He was lowly, but he drove out the money changers in the temple. So meekness is not weakness. Gentleness is not weakness, You say, what is it? Let me just say it this way. It's a freedom from resentment. It's a freedom from revenge. It's a freedom from bitterness. A freedom from retaliation. A freedom from asserting our own rights. It is, beloved, in that phrase, power under control. In other words, a horse uncontrolled, you'll be in trouble, but tamed is gentle. A wind cutting across the hillside can bring soothing, you know, relief to people who are hot, but a tsunami is going to create destruction, right? And so a medicine taken the right way may be of help, but taken the wrong way, it could be destructive. Listen, you've got your power under control that even at times when you want to speak, you may hold back. And even when you've been spoken against, you're not looking to even the score as most Hollywood movies are built off. So listen, for God to be glorified, the church must be unified. Let me just ask you, are you at peace with everybody in your family? And are you at peace with everybody in this church? You know, John Flavel, the Puritan said, he said, what? What? He said, at peace with the father and at war with his children, it cannot be. So unity begins with humility and gentleness. And I think the key to all of that is dying to yourself. Can you imagine what would happen if we walked in the doors and everybody was more important than we are? That, that we sought to esteem others as more highly than ourselves. That we think of the Lord Jesus Christ. He humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You've got to die to yourself. I've read this once before, but I saw it on John MacArthur's desk when I went into his office to talk to him when I was on staff there and on the elder team. And I loved what was on his desk. It was a portrait. It was a plaque. And in this plaque were these words. And on the top it said, die to self. And I've, I want to read this to you, and you tell me if this is your heart, my heart, as we think about each other. It goes like this. When you are forgotten or neglected or purposely said it not, and you sting and hurt with insult or the oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ that is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but take it all in patient, loving silence, that is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, and spiritual insub- you know, insensibility and endure it as Jesus endured it, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, any offering, any raiment, any climate, any society, any attitude, any interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. And when you never care to refer yourself to yourself in conversation or to record your own good works or itch after commendation, when you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. When you can see your brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy or question God while your own needs are far greater and in desperate circumstances, that is dying to self. How you doing with that? Listen, to the degree that I take this on and you take this on will be to the degree that God is glorified when our church is unified. So he calls us to this unity and he begins to spell out this character. I pray that we would model the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't you bow your head with me?